Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is Roy Bitten, an American keyboard and piano player best known as a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. He spent decades with Bruce both in the studio and on tour. During the past decade alone, those tours have grossed more than $800 million. He's played to more than 8 million fans at more than 330 concerts. The Wrecking Ball Tour was one of the highest grossing music tours of all time, playing to more than 3.5 million fans. Roy's a producer in his own right, having produced Lucinda Williams' iconic album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. He's contributed to countless other albums and toured with artists such as Dire Straits, Peter Gabriel, Stevie Nicks, David Bowie, and Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell Tour. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the E Street Band in 2014. And now we're going to find out why the boss calls him the professor. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Roy Bitten. So let's go to the beginning of your life. Where are you from? Well, I was born in the Bronx. Uh, my parents lived in the Bronx their entire life. And uh, I was born in a, in a fourth-floor walk-up apartment building in the uh, West Bronx. And um, In the apartment? Excuse me? You were born in the apartment? Or no, 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 no. No, no when I'm saying born, when I was born. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was born in the hospital. Went we into weren't labor that, and, you know. Yeah, no, I'm just checking. <laughs> uh, Wanted clarity. Pioneer days, right? <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> they lived in a fourth-floor walk-up in the Bronx. And uh, no elevator. So that was kind of an interesting uh, place to begin my life. And, and uh, But my parents would summer in Rockaway Beach. They would pack up after, you know, when June would roll around and we'd go out to Rockaway, which is the western part of Long Island. And we'd spend the summers there and then go back to the Bronx in, uh, in the fall. I really think of the beach and Rockaway as sort of more where I grew up because we did move there full time by the time I was 11 or 12. And, and, and Rockaway was just a fantastic, amazing spot uh, in New York. It was really just four blocks wide from the bay to the ocean and beautiful, huge beaches, kind of like Santa Monica Beach, just gigantic beaches and just for miles and miles. And of course, it was um, a lot of families and a lot of kids. So every day there were uh, at least 10, 15 kids hanging out on any particular block or on the beach. So it was really a fantastic neighborhood. And really, when I look back at my uh, early upbringing, I, it, that's where I really feel, I feel myself. Are you an only child? Only child. So hmm. both of your parents picked up, left the Bronx, and went to Rockaway? They did. That's amazing. Well, they, they had been summering there for 20, 30 years. So they finally decided, let's move. We, they wanted to move out of the Bronx. And the Bronx where I was living was, was getting a little 
funky, you know. It, it had turned. The neighborhood was turning. At one time, it was a, it was a uh, a very very Jewish neighborhood. The area had started falling into some disrepair, and a lot of people had moved out. And my parents decided that they wanted to live by the beach full time. My husband grew up at 181st in the Grand Concourse, very close to where I lived. He's this. You're roughly the same age, and his his parents stayed there until they moved to Florida. Until where, all they Jew, moved. where all Jews go. Right. Well, my father was working in Manhattan, so uh, he. So did was, he go from Rockaway into Manhattan? Yes. When you guys moved out the there? trains. Yeah. The trains went all the way out there. They right? did. In fact, yeah. the last stop was in Rockaway Beach, 116th Street in Rockaway Beach, and we lived on 138th Street. So wow, what like, an idyllic childhood! It, right? it does. It Rockaway? sounds. It was. It really was a great. A, a great experience, you know. Where did the music come from? Well, my grandfather, it turns out, was a violinist. My father had some some musical talent, although he never was able to really develop it. It does pass along, you know, and I, I see it in, in my sons, you know. Actually, I have one son who is, in particular, has, uh, really has my gift. Which one of your sons? Ryan, my younger son. is. is does, he, uh, does he play regularly? He he plays irregularly. <laughs> Sounds like a young so boy. So he's not dedicated to having a career doing what. No, he doesn't now. seem to. He he really didn't. He hasn't really embraced it. And and uh, but you know uh, it'll be with him, and he can play. So uh, yeah, your talent is so massive. I have your album, the last album you made in my car, and I play it all the time. I mean, your talent is absolutely immense. Thank you. You know, I've I've been uh, also very lucky. You know, to have been. Born at a particular time when, you know, by the time I hit my teens, it really was a musical rock and roll renaissance period, you know. Also, being in the right place at the right time really helps too, you know. So did you play in high school with bands? Like you talk about your son has talent, but he doesn't seem to be um, have that fire yet, maybe. How did it unfold for you as a young um, guy? Well, I was prodigious at a young age, so... Uh, when I was about six years old, I, wa- I I started taking accordion lessons. And my father had a dear friend who was a violinist in the NBC orchestra. His his friend Charlie heard me play a little bit and said, you have to get this kid to a real good teacher, you know. So the, he hooked me up with a an accordionist who had a little accordion school on 48th Street in Manhattan, Music Row, which was around the corner from the Metropole Cafe, which at the time when I was a very young boy, Gene Krupa would play there all the time. They actually had real jazz, great jazz people playing there. So they took me to him and he also worked in the NBC Orchestra. And he was a very famous accordion player in that world, in the world of accordions. (laughs) Wasn't accordion a really, like in those days, a really important instrument to know? It's interesting for you to to say that because up until Elvis, the accordion was probably the most popular instrument in America. And I would say one out of three families had an accordion in a closet somewhere because (laughs) they bought an accordion for somebody to play. And of course, they tried to play it for maybe a, a month or two and then they closed it up and stowed it in a yeah. in a closet, you know. Do you but yes. still know how to play an accordion? Oh, I play it every once in a while. I I either record with it or or play it. Wow! I pull it out. It, it's a beautiful instrument when it's when it's played well. You know, it's a it's a funny instrument because you have to make it breathe, and 
the only way you make it breathe is by pulling the bellows in and out. And if you don't do that properly, it's a very uncomfortable instrument to listen to or to, <laughs> or to play for that matter, you know? Yeah. So, but when it's played right, it, it's really quite beautiful. And in fact, forget the United States for a second. If you listen to Argentinian tango music, the accordion in it is absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Wow, so, I never knew that. That's so cool. I, I have a friend, Lori, who played the accordion in the Oingo Boingo. Lori, oh, Oingo Boingo, Yeah, sure. Lori Ehrenreich, and she was on Go- The Gong Show. She was a famous young lady playing the accordion. Yeah. And she she comes from a family that owned a music store in New York, and yeah. that was the first instrument that her family made her learn. So right. it's the same kind of time and space where it was the 50s, early 50s, right? right? That's right. And it was an important thing to know. And then Elvis rolled, rolled into town, and all of a sudden the guitar became the thing. Yeah. You know. Did you get tempted to play the guitar at that point, or were you too young to really – um, well, at that point, I had already kind of transitioned into playing the piano also. So that for me was uh, the thing. I already was able to express myself somewhat on, on keyboard. But certainly the rock and roll thing started to hit. And, and also at that time period, if you if you go to radio in that time period and you listen to, you know, Little Richard was on. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino. So there was the piano was ex- very well represented in in early rock and roll, and, and even Chuck Berry. If you listen to Chuck Berry, Jimmy Johnson was yes. the guy who was really. In fact, they say that Jimmy was the guy who, with his left hand on the piano, came up with that riff that Chuck Berry is that we're also from. Well, somewhat from the people are somewhat familiar mm-hmm. with. You know, dun 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 dun. They say that was really Jimmy on the piano. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of went with. I just kind of stuck with what I was doing. Right, the early, the baby stages of what is now rock and roll, which was a revolution when you. Well, started. certainly listening. I grew up. With 50s rock and roll. It wasn't until the Beatles hit and the Rolling Stone, the British invasion hit, that, you know, kids started to want to be in a band. This was in the 60s. Yeah, because there really were. I mean, there weren't a lot of bands prior to that. There, there were some and a lot of singing groups, you know. But once once the British invasion hit, it was I want to be in a band, you know, with, and 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 that was that was really the deal. So when that happened, I was in junior high school, high school, and uh, kids were forming bands. I had a couple of I played in a couple little bands. My parents really couldn't afford to buy me an electric piano or a little electric organ, which is what everybody was using. So. I wasn't in great demand with an accordion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's but, so interesting. You just – somehow that didn't fit the in interesting, rock and roll. interesting thing was I, I, I would listen to everybody and I, everybody and I remember one guy had this fantastic electric piano and he was in this, the best band in high school. And I was going, man, I could play rings around this guy. But – they had him in the band because he had a great keyboard. Yeah, right. you know, he, had he had a, a beautiful – he looked great. That must have been torture for you. Terrible. <laughs> but, you know, it lit a fire under me. And you also – you know, there's, there's uh, an internal thing that you, that you have to have. Sometimes it's uh, – you're, you're motivated by external influences 
And then you just, you know, what can you say? You're just compelled by your own talent and your own emotional feeling, you know, your own feelings. Well, you were a savant too. I mean, there was no way that you would have let anything stop you. I mean, this was. Um, I think I tried to stop myself. <laughs> you did? You know, well, my parents wanted me to, you know, go to college and be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, and I kind of went along with that to some degree. I mean, when I, when I was in college, I was taking pre-med courses. Where'd you go? I went to Brooklyn College, Brooklyn College in the city of New York, you know, which was really, a, it was a difficult school to get into. In fact, I, I kind of squeaked in because you really had to have great marks in those days. It was no, mm -hmm. there were no open admissions at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of squeaked in there and, and uh, I went through the motions of, of, uh, taking pre-med courses. And then at one point I, I left school for a semester. I had were I was getting offers to work in New York. So at one point I, I left and I did a road company, a Jesus Christ Superstar, which was a, a great experience. And I actually uh, was a, a musical director of that for a while. I was doing some recording. I had some connections, you know, just networking in New York was, you know, a big deal. Was your deal mother the whole time going, this isn't serious. You got to go back to school? Well, they wanted me to finish college, but I think after they saw me in Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> they said he could have a career. He could, have he a could career. probably yeah. have a career. At this. And you were starting to also do session. Yeah, work. I was starting to do sessions. I had a friend who worked for a guy named Jeff Barry and Jeff Barry wrote with Ellie Greenwich. They were a very successful, famous songwriting team. And he, at the time, was producing all the different artists from the show, Broadway show Hair. So I did some work with some of those people. Uh, very early sessions for me. And You uh, were still a kid. You were, what, 18 or 19? I was, uh, yeah, yeah. So out of that, you know, one thing led to another. And next thing you know, you're, you know, you're working mm -hmm. and you have a career. Of course, the thing was, if it was 1970, let's say, uh, or even earlier, there was, there were no rock musicians over the age of 30. So, you know, you really didn't, it didn't seem like it was even possible to consider having a long-term career. It seemed like, okay, we're going to do this for a while. And then you're going to have to, I guess, sell insurance or something. You know? <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> you know. And then, and then along the way, um, when we looked into your past and did some uh, sort of tried to figure out what your timeline was, in 1974, you answered an ad. Yeah. 1974, I was working with a woman – a singer-songwriter that I met in Jesus Christ Superstar, who was a very, a very talented singer, songwriter. And I had uh, contacted somebody I knew. We got a record deal for her, made an album. It uh, hit the charts, as they say, at a, th a thousand with an anchor, you know, Aww. instead of uh, 50 with a bullet, yeah. you know. And uh, – so that petered out, and uh, and that summer of '74, I had been living up in Boston, and I was sort of, you know, I I saw it was a dead end. 
So I said, I guess I have to go back to New York. You know, maybe that's the thing. And I was talking to my mother about it. And she said, oh, come back to New York. You know, you'll see your friends on the beach and the fall will roll around and, you know, you'll figure it out (laughs) and you'll figure it out. So I did. I packed up and uh, I went home in early July. Shortly thereafter, I picked up the Village Voice newspaper in New York, which in those days, if you went to the classified section in the Village Voice, they were actually real, actual ads for various artists. If they needed a piano player or whatever, and there was an ad that said, uh, wanted piano player and drummer needed for uh, Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band. Everything from Jerry Lee Lewis, classical to Jerry Lee Lewis, and f- drums, no junior Ginger Bakers. For those of you who don't know who Ginger Baker was, he was the drummer for Cream with Eric Clapton, and he had two bass drums. He played, his drum set had double bass drums, and that was certainly something that Bruce <laughs> did not want. They didn't want anybody who would play that style. <laughs> I had met him at a club called Max's Kansas City prior to seeing the ad. And we were doing a gig with this woman that I had just told you about. And uh, for three nights, we traded sets. We were the other band. So Bruce played 40 minutes and we'd play. And we did that for three, four nights. And, you know, you'd pass each other on the way back or to the stage. Hey, that was really great. You know, you play great, blah, blah, blah. You know, so we sort of we had knowledge of each other. And then I saw the ad. I called up. Uh, I told him that we had, we had met previously, talked to his manager. They made an appointment. I went into the city. We did an audition. They called me back for another audition and then called me up and said, hey, you know what? You, you, if you want, you have the gig. I said, oh, fantastic. I, I, I'm so excited. And they said, and it's $115 a week. <laughs> oh, my and God. And I went, $115 a week? I'm making more than that now doing this other stuff I'm doing, but I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> So I, it was a good decision, I believe, on my part. I would say. <laughs> looking know, back, you think? Looking back on it. I'm just finished reading a book right now called The Music of Chance, which one of our other guests uh, suggested uh, the book. And, I, and I'm almost finished with it now. And what you're talking about is exactly that. You know how chance just abstractly, you crossed each other, your paths crossed, and then you went in and you said yes to that and took a pay cut to do it and, you know – here you are. Right. Is- well, somebody once said to me, uh, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. And I think I was prepared at the time. I had the, certainly, I had the opportunity. So it, it just came together for me at that, it's, that moment. It's so interesting too, because it sounds like you had these influence of jazz very early, you know, being exposed to really prodigious jazz musicianship, mm-hmm. classical music, the accordion, influenced by rock and roll. And that kind of deep bench of capabilities was probably very important. It really, you know, uh, it, it's really true. I mean, you realize that you are a product of the cumulative experience of of your listening history. And, you know, if you are very musical and if you take all of this stuff in, it forms an identity, a musical identity. And... And certainly for me, living in New York and listening to all the, the, the music around me was hugely influential 
you know. So and and popular music for me was really my bent, you know, uh, uh, blues and rock and roll and 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 R and B. Although I listened to jazz a lot, I really I never felt I could really play it, nor did I really have the desire to. It was always blues and and R and B and and rock that that really grabbed me, you know, in 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 the gut, you know. That's that's how you form. That forms you. I've talked about this to, with you before, but at that time in my life, I was living in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and I was working days at a bank, and nights I worked at the Inkwell. And you guys were playing at the Stone Pony, and when the nights were over, you would guys would come over to the Inkwell. And, and have you a would cheeseburger. have cheeseburgers and hang out. And, you know, I was this underage, cute little thing. And um, I met Clarence. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't, this is not a terrible thing to say, but at that time, Clarence was selling marijuana. Yeah. And he lived on, the, on, sea, on Ocean Avenue Seabright, in Seabright. And, Seabright. and me and my girlfriends, we would go over to Clarence's and we'd buy little nickelbacks from him because <laughs> oh, you guys were making $115 a week and you needed more money. So that's how Clarence made more money. So our paths crossed. And many years later, you guys had at that time, I think, were probably playing for two or 300 people a night at the Stumbone, if even that many. I don't remember how many people came in there. I remember the low roof in that place and everything about it. But uh, many years later, I kind of, you know, mildly kept in touch with him. Yeah. And you guys came and played at the Universal Amphitheater. It, it was probably around 1977 or 1978. And you showed up and Clarence, I forget how he reached out to me because we didn't have email in those days, but somehow I found out that you guys were playing there and he left me tickets. Oh, that's and I great. thought, and I never been to the Universal Amphitheater, and I thought, oh, this could be cool. And then I walk in the door, and I went, oh my god, yeah. this is like a big thing. And that was so our paths crossed very early. Before, and you, that was you guys ascended fast. Oh, it's, you know? so, it's really funny, and it's like church too. I mean, it's Sorry? so it's like church. The 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 whole live performance the of, experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he made two records prior to uh, me joining the band. And they were really great records. They were probably not recorded as well as they could have been and maybe uh, not performed up to the standards of, of normal recording, but they were incredibly charming, wonderful records. And he lost the, his piano player and his drummer. And as I said before, I was lucky enough to sort of be in the right place at the right time. And... In filling that slot, I I hit him at a moment in time where he was about to explode. But it was do or die for him. The third album for Columbia was, if you don't have real success, forget critical success at this point. If you don't have real success commercially, I think he they would have dropped him. He and Billy Joel were both being sort of promoted at the time and and they were really putting their emphasis on Billy because he was already had a couple of hits you know so anyway we made that record and we made Born to Run and uh when Born to Run was released that was the rocket ship you know that's what it really took off and not only did I hit him at the right time but I hit him at a time when his writing really needed to be interpreted on the piano. So we cut that record, piano, bass, drums, and and of course he sang and played the guitar, but then he, after the fact, he would overdub the guitar 
and the vocal because when you play live like that, there's always sort of leakage and to get it right, you can't just punch in. It doesn't sound right, so you have to redo it. So I really got to flex my muscles on that record and um, it worked out. You know, yeah. It really worked out for him and worked out for, <laughs> I would say. for yeah. me. Yeah. You know. I would say. I, my experience of that music is that there is a kind of there's, – there's always a real emotional quotient to the lyric. But the piano for me is the musical emotion no, that comes thank through. You. I always uh, felt that I was uh, interpreting – and it wasn't just well. Let's let me figure out a piano part. I always felt that that my job was interpretive because of the nature of the band. Uh, the piano seemed to be the element that defined a lot of things, and uh, melodically sometimes, and and emotionally, dynamically. So I used all all the tools of 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 architecture to you know bring whatever I could to the song and out of the song, you know. Were you making more than $115 a week? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a $5 raise. <laughs> now, what was going on with you in your personal life? That were you, were you? My personal life? Were you living in, um, in New York at that time when you guys did that? No, I was living down the Jersey Shore. We all lived, you know, 15, 20 minutes from each other. Max and I joined the band. Max the drummer and I joined the band. We said, well, you know, we we want to live down there because we would rehearse down there. You know, we were all close. So he and I, we rented a house together and we lived together for a while. And uh, and eventually Max had a had a ste- got a steady girlfriend and I did. And we eventually said, OK, we sort of like, you know, can't live together. We need anymore. to have separate yeah. places, you know. And then my personal life at that point was really just recording and going on the road you know we we were because yeah, you went to being all of a sudden you guys were superstars I and mean, that album sudden, just launched the we were e street band through this we were the huge cult college band you know shortly thereafter bruce had uh was embroiled in a lawsuit with his manager for a couple of years and at one point we uh, we had a restraining order again uh against playing we weren't well at least they tried it was overturned i believe and um so from i would say from 75 when when we hit big to really till 78 when the the the, uh, next album came out which was darkness on the edge of town we had a very very difficult period really difficult period it was hard to earn money and it was it was um we just were toughing it out, waiting to see what was going to happen with this lawsuit. It was like we were all of a sudden we were thrust into the you know the stratosphere and then suddenly brought down to earth and had our hands tied. What was the lawsuit about? Are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah. Oh, sure. It's it's there's been a lot written about it. it, it he had a a, a lawsuit with uh, his manager, Mike Appel. Mike had signed to signed him to some contracts for the time. They were sort of kind of Elvis contracts, you know, where Elvis had signed away a lot of his of his earnings and his uh, property, and uh, it really was not standard anymore uh, 
what he had signed and and Bruce really felt he had been taken advantage of and and uh so as a result you know Bruce was not exactly making what he should have out of his big uh, album career. lots of money comes in and and he's not like, you where's know where's my money where's my money he sued and uh, they settled and uh you know it settled uh very satisfactorily and then we moved on. Then we went back into the studio, which actually tomorrow is the release, is the 40th anniversary. 40th, which is really oh, ridiculous for me to say. <laughs> Kim 40th anniversary of too, Darkness so. on the Edge wow. of Town. It was released June 2nd, 1978. Wow. There it is. <laughs> That's amazing. Don't, that was your 20th birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't you think that there was, because of all that hardship in the beginning, kind of built some of the credibility of like the working class relatability of of Bruce and cuz that was that was the vibe in the beginning. Now you're talking really about about Bruce and and uh and what he writes about. And I mean you have to go back to his life to really see that. I I'm, certainly I'm sure that, you know, that uh colored his writing to some degree ever since then. But I think if you go back to his blue-collar roots in Freehold, New Jersey, and you look at his, uh, you know, his father and his mom and uh, how he grew up, I think that he was already the, the seeds of writing about that type of life growing up and what he experienced. That was already it was already there. And uh, he, he he expresses it ve- really well. I mean, in his autobiography, you know, which you you guys have a band that has stayed together now for forty plus years. Along the way, of course, we lost Clarence. And, we lost um, Clarence. We lost Danny, and oh, we yeah. and he and we were uh, separated. I mean, separated. He fired us for uh, right in nineteen in nineteen eighty seven, I guess it was or eighty eight, and that lasted a decade, really. Well, at least for the entire band, I actually did work with him after he fired us. So he fired me, fired everybody, and then I was kind of rehired <laughs> for a, a period of time. But yeah, you know, it, it's it's been uh, a long relationship. Yeah. Okay, so let's go. Let's go back if we can. So the second album comes out, and you guys had resolved the litigation, and now what happens? Out on the road. Playing 120 concerts, and, and at that point we were playing. I think we were playing colleges and arenas at that point. You know, we were uh, we were just on our way. I guess. Were you in your 20s still? Well, let me think. In 1975, when we played Born to Run, came out. I was uh, it was 75, so I was 26. And at 26, we were playing in London at the Hammersmith Odeon. <laughs> which was a big, big deal. The Hammersmith Odeon was the great uh, showcase venue in London. And when we played there, everybody was in the audience, you know, and it was scary. It, you're, so you're babies. Stuff. We were babies and had never been out of the United States, you know. And they speak funny over there with that British accent. What? <laughs> they speak funny over there. It's hard to understand. And they speak funny and drive on the wrong side of the street, yeah, right? I say, would you stop speaking British, please? I can't understand. <laughs> so we were a, a little freaked out of our minds. But it, it's great because for years, many years, we thought, well, you know, that really was not the greatest 
performance that we you know we had ever given we were we said we were so freaked out we think it was it wasn't really good you know and then the video of it turned up they found the film of it no kidding but no audio it had been filmed with two cameras stationary cameras one was over kind of over my shoulder you could see my profile and the piano keyboard and then there was one from the other side where they could film bruce and we had it for years, no audio. And then one day, Bruce got a call. They found the audio in some vault wow. somewhere. I don't even know where they found it. But, of course, the audio and uh, was never synced to the video. You know, it was – I just recorded separately, I guess. So the question was, how do we sync this up now? Technically, they figured out how they could do it, but – they couldn't always tell what song was what, but luckily because there was one camera over my shoulder, they could see the cues, my hands. Yeah. And if you watched my hands long enough, you could probably – it gave a lot of clues as to what song it was. And Bruce also knew you know, what shtick he was doing on stage, you know, <laughs> wow. which really helped sync it all up. And they got it all synced up and it wound up in – our Born to Run anniversary box set. It's a black and white footage. I think it's the entire show. And was it better than you remembered? It was fantastic. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it was fantastic. The band was just smoking and we were red hot and Bruce was amazing. And it was just an incredible performance. And, and to, so I to see that. it all those years later what a story. was really phenomenal. In fact, when I showed it to my sons, we watched it in my living room. And at one point during the show, my my older son said to me, Dad, how old were you when you were doing this? And he was 26, I think, when he was asking me this. It was a few years ago already. I said, well, I was I was 26. It kind of blew his mind. Right, no kidding. <laughs> there we were in London, you know, doing that thing. In front of a zillion you know? famous people. Yeah. That's unbelievable. What a story. Now let's talk about that. Are you were you guys all starting to get married and have families around that time? Well, I think Gary was married uh, already in the in the seventies, mid seventies. He was already married. That's right. He was the only one who was married. I got married. I think Max and I got married probably around nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one. So at that 82. time, you guys were out on the road. You didn't have wives and kids yet, but you were working no, like we crazy. Were, we were like, you were you know, doing hundreds of shows a year. We were working a we were a working band. We were either in the studio every day for months and months, or we were on the road. Everybody thinks it's so glamorous, but it's really hard work. It was glamorous. It was glamorous. <laughs> it's better now. <laughs> it was really hard work. Yeah. It was. It's nothing. Listen, is, is anything really easy? Nothing's really no, easy. No, but those are long hour days. Your accommodations Terrible. aren't great. But when you're 26, you're you're having you know, the best time ever. You're and it, it's you don't think about those things. You're doing them, right? You know, and you're so immersed in it that, in fact, you're lucky to be immersed in it. I mean, I I wish that I wish for my sons and for all you know people trying to, you know, get their life together, that they have something, they can find something that can they can be as immersed in as I was at that age, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a beating, you know. It was really a beating. So touring is the beating, right? How about studio? In those days it yeah. was. Yeah, this, in the studio, like talk about 
you were like the guy who co-wrote with Bruce. Mm, not really. Not really? No. I did co-write a couple of songs with him. He generally writes the songs all by himself. I, I had an opportunity to co-write a couple of things with him later on. But he pretty much writes all the songs and lyrics, you know. But in, when you went out on tour in those days, it wasn't as fancy as it is now when you go out. It was get on the bus and forget about everything else, <laughs> you know. And, and did you did you get your own room or did you have to share? Oh no, I I we I had my own hotel room when we had a hotel room, but we spent a lot of nights. You know, we we would get to the gig. We do a three hour sound check because we were all obsessive because Bruce was obsessive and. And then we would, you know, have some terrible food. For, <laughs> <laughs> then we would. Craft services was horrible. <laughs> and then we would go out on stage and do a four-hour show. And then after that, we would do radio interviews for two hours and wait around. And then we'd get on the bus. And now it's probably two thirty, three o'clock in the morning and you're starving. So you get on the bus, you wind up at some truck stop somewhere where they probably don't want to serve you because you have really long hair. <laughs> and, and let's not forget, this is 1976. It wasn't that long after the Civil Rights Act, even, right. you know. And anyway, you know, you'd uh, get some food and then you're back on the bus and then you have probably a nine-hour drive to the next venue, next gig rather, or next city. And maybe play that night. So you try and sleep on the bus. Well, the first uh, vehicle that we traveled in was a motorhome. That was a mo – well, no, that's wrong too. We actually drove in a station wagon from a station wagon to a van, a Dodge van. A Dodge van. And then from a van with little bench seats, you know. We went from that quickly to a GMC motorhome. And the motorhome was sort of a modernistic motorhome with big windows and a couple of bunks and the table. The little table in it would go down to the seat level like a, uh, you know. Coffee table kind of? It would be like a, a booth, you know, with a, a little uh, seat on both sides and the the table would go down and then you could lay just big enough to lay down <laughs> in it, but not wide enough to sleep shoulder to shoulder. So you had to kind of sleep head to foot. So Gary and I slept on that. <laughs> Clarence actually had a bunk. Bruce had a bunk. And then in the back, Danny slept with Max. <laughs> and... So it was close quarters, but we had it was a lot. There was a lot of fun times. I remember one time waking up on the hillside overlooking some city in Pennsylvania, and and Clarence Clarence made breakfast that morning. Clarence was a good cook, and we had a little kitchen in the thing, and you know we had breakfast and did all the dishes, and it was great. We ate outside the thing overlooking this great scenic view. We got back on the road. Driving down the highway, our road manager steps on the brake and the holding tank just overflows from doing the dishes. <laughs> and this river, this river of water and sewage just Ooh. comes running right down the aisle, right down. Oh. The, so that was kind of, you know, early days. Then we went to a, a big bus that they took all the seats out and put army cots in, drilled holes in the floor, and they had army cots, but the army cots weren't well secured. So 
if they went around a curve a little too fast, the army cots would tilt. And if he was sleeping and he went around a sharp curve, you wound up in the aisle. Uh. <laughs> and from that, we went to like a real country and western customized bus, Silver Eagle, which was like You're really moving big up the food time, chain now, right? <laughs> which was really something. Except you had a little bunk that was only about, you know, two and a half feet high. I, I remember there was a, a, a control for heat in your little cubicle. And it was either on or off. They they couldn't figure <laughs> out. In they the put a rheostat in there to control it, you know. Yeah. So it was on or off. You would be on the bus and you'd be like freezing and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to turn the heat on. You turn the heat on and you go, oh, I feel so good. And then you'd fall asleep. And then in about a half an hour, you'd wake up soaking wet because it would get so hot. <laughs> and then you'd turn the thing off and you'd fall back asleep. And then you'd be <laughs> shivering because now you're cold and wet. <laughs> so... We did that for about nine months and then I finally said, if if we don't fly next tour from city to city, I'm going to fly. I don't care if I make no money, but I, I can't <laughs> Do I can't travel like this anymore, you know? So I and said- And you guys were making a little bit of money then. We were doing better, yeah. And then by next tour, which was the river tour, we, we were- we were flying around, you know. And you were so. all a bunch of guys. There were no women around, right? There's nobody, no women in the band. Well, Backup on, singers. Women I mean, around. women around, yeah. but you know, but none of them were on tour with you. You didn't. No. Uh, yeah. No. It was a bunch of guys in a room. So you know, all the sounds and guys on a bus. Things that men do are all on the bus together. And correct. You know, yeah. women we don't, don't need do to talk about things. that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip that part. What men but do on a bus? Been, did you guys all get along, or was there was there camaraderie or arguing or? We really got along, you know, it, it, it was, uh, we were all committed to, to doing this, you know, and you know, look, there's, you know, you're young, there's always some, some petty, you know, differences and maybe even some internal jealousies that occur. You know, it, it also, because it was Bruce really, who was the central figure that sort of made it, uh, a little different. It wasn't like we were four guys who were all writing and, you know, doing all this together in that sense. So it was – he always sort of, you know, called the shots in the end, you know, and uh, we all deferred to him. So I think that in and of itself kept a cap on some of those things that can occur that um, make bands break up. It seemed when we were doing research on this, uh, the things that I didn't hear anything about were tragedies, um, you know, losing players to drug overdoses, you know, losing that kind of stuff. Well, it seemed like there was um, a decent amount of, and again, I was just reading this, so I don't, I wasn't in the bus, so, but it seemed like there was camaraderie and people got along and, you know, you guys went, had, a, had a career that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You were playing bigger and more prestigious venues along the way and, and, um, you, yeah, you know, there, there, there wasn't a lot of room for that kind of uh, abuse, you know. I mean, you couldn't do what we were doing. And I mean, some band, I mean, some guys did, you know, obviously there were bands who uh, people were tremendously abusive with drugs. Or Yeah, look know. at my friend Roger, you know, two of the band members in his band died of drug overdoses. Yeah, you know. And what a, what, a, what a tragedy, you know. But for us, it was... You had a real work ethic. There was a... Well, the, the work ethic came from the top, you know. And he's the hardest working guy I've ever met and the most committed. 
And uh, I don't think there's a day goes by where he doesn't, he's not trying to write something or, you know, doing something to further his craft. And somewhere along the line, you got married and you started to have a family and you were a road warrior. You were out there still out on on the road doing touring and working. Right. So I got married during the river tour or after the river tour. And then we spent a couple of years recording. And then at that point, Born, Born in the USA came out. Were you still living in the Northeast? I was living in the Northeast. I was living in Jersey. And we were recording in New York. And we made Born in the USA. You know, we recorded for, I don't know, three years off and on. So my married life at that point was, I, you know, I had a home that I had built in New Jersey. And I was traveling back and forth every day into New York to record. You know, I had somewhat of a social life down the Jersey Shore. Where were you living in Jersey? I was uh, off of Cooper Road by Navasink River Road. So, you know, I had established sort of a, you know, a social life there and and, uh, uh, somewhat of a married life and running into the city recording. and, and, And then... Okay, you know, we released Born in the USA and suddenly we're the biggest <laughs> band in the world. In the world. For that moment in yeah. time, you know. and That was unbelievable. Yeah, it I was really. I played that album so many times that it was, in those days we had vinyl. You know, yeah. I had a vinyl album of that. I may have it somewhere still to this day. Well, pull it out and get a turntable because <laughs> vinyl is back. It's totally. <laughs> it really is. So, but that was the switch to becoming a global sensation, right? That we we had already been touring internationally with, uh, like I said, we were there minimally in, on Born to Run. We were there every tour. But by the time we had Born in the USA, it was – you know, really big places everywhere. Wembley Stadium, I think we played, I forget how many nights we were there, but I remember I was talking to some some young band uh, years later and I was describing playing Wembley. I said, we, you know, Boyne, we played Wembley, I don't know, five nights, whatever it was. And they went, oh, Wembley Arena. And no, we went, and I said, no, Wembley Stadium. And they were just like, what? You played Wembley Stadium that many nights? You know, it was really, it was a What's big deal. What's that like? What does that feel like versus being in the arena? You know what I mean? Like that that shift from gigantic to preposterously huge. <laughs> it's an amazing, it's an amazing experience. You go out there and you, there's a, 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 literally a sea of faces and, and, and people cheering. It's it's an incredible, it's incredible ego boost, basically. <laughs> and you, <laughs> you guys know? are widely known as the hardest working band out there. I mean, your shows are long and fabulous. Marathons. And goes from one great song to the next great song to the next great song. You must be dripping in sweat when you're finished. And it's a long, it's a lot of work. I mean, you guys are working four it's hours. It's a lot of work, but, you know, um, you learn how to navigate it, you know, and you learn... You know, it's it's like any uh, – imagine, you know, you're uh, a, a basketball player or whatever. You learn how to pace yourself. You learn how to not hurt yourself. And you you learn how to direct your energies so that they're not wasted. That's a big part of the job, you know. If you can't do that, you're not going to uh, perform to the level that both is required or – 
you want to yourself. So some really deliberate conserving of energy. I would almost describe it as a, a type of focus. You know, you, you, you not only have to focus if you th- – there's, there's a Zen element to it. You, you, you get so inside – you can get so inside it that you become sort of a part of it. Your, your energy flows in a, in a direct way that's, that's – it's one of the reasons that a lot of people, they don't quite understand – what it is to be a musician, you know, the, you're, you're operating from a different level of consciousness in a way, you know, which is why when the show is over and you run off the stage and you get in the van, you don't really want to have any conversations for uh, a f- at least a few minutes because your brain is, is reorienting to a different reality. Reality of playing music is, uh, is something that people don't quite understand where you go, where the musician goes in his head with his emotions and with his brain, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's transcendent in a Yeah, way. it is. It really is. You know, when when you say what's it like to go out there, you're you're also anticipating doing what you're about to do. You know, I, I always laugh and uh when we're um changing in the dressing room, I, I we always go, Okay, time to turn into rock stars now. And in a way, it is because, you know, you, the process of, of preparing yourself to go on stage, it, there's a, a physical preparation, obviously, you know, which is easy to do. You change your clothes. But that's in a way is there's something symbolic about that with what you're about to do. So there's a transfer. There's something transformative. And hearing the crowd, the, the the screaming of the crowd must be pretty overwhelming every time you do it, right? Like you walk out and there's like, whoa. Yeah, it's always a job. Very cool. You know? It's always a job. Now along the way, um, since, since I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a long time, along the way you've developed lots of other interests, and you have a fantastic wife who you ha- who also has interests. And I mean, I I, I think that. Uh, I've never seen her glass collection, but I've seen photographs of her glass collection. Mm. But you have developed other interests, and you seem to be – well, you're extremely well-read, which I love talking to you. Thank and you. And you are so smart about so many things. Yeah, and I thought we were going to talk about credit swap derivatives Yeah, today. we should do that. Let's do that. <laughs> uh, I you didn't know we were going to talk about music. We are going to avoid politics, although we're more similar than we are different. <laughs> but um, it is uh, – you have a whole other life that you've developed and you've had your own recording and your own studio. And, and I'd love to talk a little bit about what your life is like now. And your yeah. cars. And, oh, my God. I mean there's so many things about you. Well, are- you know, there's a lot of things to have fun with, you know. And uh, if you're lucky, you get to do that. But, you know, I think uh, I'm in- – yeah, I am. I'm interested in all kinds of things. I, I get interested and I pull a thread and, and I uh, I start looking into it, you know, and whether it's uh, economics or uh, politics or or art or um, various other subjects, you know, it's a, it's a big wide world. And after – you know, you, we try – certainly we've been – all over the world. You travel much better now than the cot than the bus with the nail down cot. That's for sure. That's <laughs> now for sure. you have nice sheets when you go to these hotels. We have, you know, we we travel as best you can do it, you know. But you know, you realize, you know, you, you, you the more you travel, the more you realize that there's a lot of a lot of there's a big wide world out there, yeah. and and uh, it's populated with all kinds of interesting 
people and things. But you do kind of, I don't know, I found that I, over the years, you do kind of boil things down. Whereas I am interested in a lot of things, but what do I like doing? What do I do now? I kind of really enjoy seeing my my kids on the weekend. They come out a lot. They both live in LA. So I see them on the weekends a lot and, and uh, I really enjoy uh, my home and my property. And what caused you to settle here and not be in, in New Jersey? Well, I guess it was around 87. After a couple of years after born in the USA, I found myself situated in New Jersey, not really doing very much because the band had gotten so good that Bruce would come in with a, a handful of songs and, and we, we would record them in two, three days. And then he would go back and he would spend another month or two writing and I'd be sitting around. And then we'd go back in the studio for three days and then I had another three months with nothing to do. So since early on, I had always worked and recorded with other artists. I recorded with David Bowie in 76, I think it was. I was working with Stevie Nicks and Bob Seger and Jackson Brown and uh, out here mainly. So I said, you know, maybe I should just like rent a house in, in L.A. and I could work here. And then when Bruce needs me, I'll just fly back to the East Coast, do what I got to do, and then I can come back out here and do some stuff. And I had the idea maybe I would, you know, like to do a movie soundtrack. So I said, well, L.A. maybe is the right place for me. And I always loved it out here anyway because of the the, the lifestyle and the weather. So I said, OK, I'll move out here. I'll, I'll rent a place. And I had two friends who were living in Malibu, actually. And uh, so I said, well, first of all, I'm kind of a beach rat, you know, so oh, maybe you're a Jersey boy, um, uh, you know, yeah. Rockaway Beach Rockaway boy, beach. Yeah. <laughs> rock, rock, Rockaway Beach, yeah. you know. So I said, well, maybe I should move out to Malibu. I have a couple of I have two really good friends that live out there and who I also work with at times. Jimmy Iovine and my friend Tom Panunzio is a fantastic engineer, producer also. Uh, so I said, okay, great. I'll go out there and, and uh, see what it's like. And then I came out here and then said, well, I guess I, I should just sell my house in New Jersey, you know. And live in California. And move to California and just move here permanently, you know. You got one of the greatest compliments from Jimmy on the Howard Stern Show. <laughs> which And he said that you are um, one of the best keyboard players of all time. Oh, that's that's really nice. It's true. That's what he mm -hmm. said. That's that's and lovely. I've had, I know I don't know him well, but I met him a couple of times. I know um, uh, Tom better. Yeah, and um, you know these are amazing people in the music business. Absolutely, amazing people. I met them both at the record plant in 1974. <laughs> when they neither one of them had a career. Neither had uh, they. They didn't have careers. None well, of you Jimmy guys had a career. He was he was our assistant engineer, and you know you press record, press stop. <laughs> <laughs> Set up the microphones, tear them down, Ugh. you know, and uh, and Tom was at that point he he had gotten hired a little later, so he was sweeping, <laughs> and then when Jimmy got promoted to engineer, Tom became our assistant engineer. So that's how we all met, and uh, you know, Jimmy of course went on to become the the uh, music mogul that he is. And uh, the genius that he is. Yeah. And, uh, and you know. Who would have thunk, right? 
<laughs> who would have thunk? I we all knew he was destined. You did to do something. We didn't know he what was exactly, a hard charger. What heights he was going to take it to? But you could see already he was he is figuring it out. And the thing about Jimmy, I I, I always said he could see around corners. You know, mm. he always knew what was around the corner, and that was part of his brilliance. You know, and and he's well, uh, he certainly holds you in high regard as most people do. Well, that's very nice. I, I uh, Jimmy and I had a, a, a quite a, a symbiotic relationship for years. When he became a record producer, he called me in to record with Dire Straits. I love and that. And we band. made that one of my favorite albums that I ever worked on, making movies. Yeah, great, great album. Really great. Record. Yeah, were they Australian? Dire Straits? Uh, no, they're English. British. Yeah, they were British. They're uh-huh. British, and. Um, I did that. I did Stevie Nicks with him. I did Bob Seger and various other things. It's funny. I heard a track just recently. Uh, somebody sent me a track and said, have you heard this yet? They just released it. It was a Dylan song that I was in the studio with Bob Dylan. And I think it was Max on the drums and myself. I don't remember who else was there. I don't know if Steven was there or not. But we cut this song and... You know, it was one day in the studio, I, I think, and and uh, trying to put something together. And it hasn't seen the light of day wow. in 25 <clears throat> years, 30 years. And I played this thing and I was like, this is a fantastic, <laughs> just fantastic. Not only a great Dylan song, but the recording was great. Uh-huh. You know, it was really fun to hear it. Are they going to release it? It's out. It's oh, out. out some Do you know what it's called or what the compilations – Called? It's on some album that he just released okay. of outtakes. Okay. Wow. I guess, Dylan you know? outtakes. Yeah. yeah. Those shouldn't be hard to find. Car Wheels on a Gravel Road is yeah. uh, an album that I have kind of have played the grooves off of. I mm. mean, just can't love it enough. You know, what What was that like working with Lucinda Williams? Yeah. Lucinda's an amazing artist. She's uh, a wonderful singer songwriter you know very just has that that beautiful vulnerability in her voice and a very humanistic writer not unlike bruce you yeah know? very similar and right? falls in a category somewhere between she's not really country music and you know she's has got that te- that beautiful texas yeah, thing you yeah know? and she um, reminds me of nina simone in terms of her pure truth she is absolutely an honest artist, you know, in that respect. She was having some some difficulties getting the album uh, recorded. And um, I was um, her bass player. I, ha- I was actually going out at the time with her bass player's daughter. And, and she told me that, that they were having problems and that, you know, maybe they I could help out. You know, they had asked, they knew the connection. So they asked if maybe I could help. So I wound up getting involved in the record. I uh, I brought all the tapes from Nashville, took them out to L.A., and we did a lot of work and finished up the record, gave it to Rick Rubin to mix, which I was kind of sorry about, but they had that deal already made. But anyway, I sort of salvaged the the recordings and worked on them and then handed them over. And Rick did a great job finishing it up. I would have liked to finish it myself, but regardless, it came out. It's a beautiful record. 
And maybe, you know, uh, maybe the, my favorite record that she's done. Yeah. And, and a person like Lucinda Williams needs a person like you in that kind of a situation because she has something really important to bring forward, but it's very difficult. It's very it's it's hard for her. It's very emotional. It takes a lot out of her, and uh, she definitely needs somebody to. She needs the the sympathetic ear and somebody to tell her, "Don't worry, it's going to be great." You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you haven't done in your musical career that you want to do? Well, you know, there's always a, a number of people I would like to do something creative with. And there's always a list, you know, as the, uh, I would think if you asked any musician, they'd give you a list of people that they wish they would have played with or they would still like to play with. Or I always wanted to do a movie soundtrack, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's difficult to really do that anymore. You really, the, the, the technical chops that you need now to do that years ago when i really wanted when i originally wanted to do it i think it would have been a lot easier for me i don't know if i could negotiate it that well today interesting yeah i mean you've certainly had a fantastic career and you're so well respected in your industry and you're not a prima donna i mean everybody that i know that knows you says that working with you is a true joy you show up on time you don't have (laughs) attitude you're spectacularly talented and you have beautiful energy. You have such a lovely centeredness to you. Thank you. Tell it's me just, more. <laughs> you really do, though. Enough you do. Me. What do you think? <laughs> Enough about me. Let's talk about me. <laughs> but that's true. I mean, universally, when and as I said before about Jimmy when he was on Howard's show, and I heard that, I know that to be true. You know, I mean, everybody knows that about you. So it's a great compliment to you. Well, I've also, you know, I got to say, I've been also lucky, very lucky to work with people who were incredibly talented. And that really helps. You know, you work with people who really have their their stuff together. And it, it does make it a bit easier, you know. I always found that it was people who were trying to pull something together who really didn't have it. That made it more difficult for the people around them. If you know, if you can get yeah. what I'm saying, yeah. you know. So in that respect, like I say, I think that, uh, you know, I've been really blessed. If I look at all the the work that I've done over the years and the people that I've worked with, I'm a very lucky guy. That's fantastic. Well, loved interviewing you. Really. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was really great. It was awesome. You're welcome. I just loved it. Really my pleasure. It was a joy. Next time, you'll meet Remy Adeleke. He was born to Nigerian royalty and began life surrounded by luxury, privilege, and security. But when his father suddenly died, the Nigerian community and relatives in the U.S. turned their backs on his American mother. With nowhere to turn, Remy's family entered into a very different kind of life when they moved to the Bronx and New York City. His youth was marked by bad choices, but he always knew that there was something greater in store for him. He answered that higher calling by joining the Navy and rising to become an elite Navy SEAL. He served his country for more than 10 years when that higher power interceded again. Without any acting experience, Remy was chosen by blockbuster director Michael Bay for a starring role in Transformers The Last Night. Today, in addition to his film work, Remy is an entrepreneur, a model, a husband and father, and a best-selling author. So join us for a Riches to Rags to Riches story as we rewind to the beginning with Remy Adeleke on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. 
Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 